0: Well, you may be seated for just a minute. We're going to read from Psalm 4 in a second, but I just want to say my name is Mike Samuels, and uh, if I don't know you, maybe I can meet you afterwards, but this church is a very special church um, to my family and to me. I was baptized here. I was trained and ordained here, and some of my wife, Brooke, and I's best friends are sitting in this room. So it's a, it's a great privilege and honor to be here this morning with you and to share uh, God's word. I'm sorry for the cold. I promise I, I didn't bring it to Oregon intentionally, but I guess I did. And um, just a personal word, I had too much coffee this morning, so if I'm like kind of jittery or something... Um, I'm really not weird, I promise, not weird, but I uh, had too much coffee. So please join me in Psalm. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 4 this morning. The Psalms are in the middle of your Bible, uh, maybe for one reason to remind us that prayer and worship should be at the center of everything that we do. So you were in Psalm 119 last week, and um, I doubt he did that whole chapter, right? Okay, good. That would have been a really long sermon. But we're going to go back to Psalm chapter 4. And so if you wouldn't mind, stand to honor the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Psalm 4 in its entirety. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies, Selah? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord, Selah. That uh, There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Praise be to God for his word. You may be seated. <laughs> One of my favorite things about living in the Pacific Northwest and in Oregon is the outdoors. Our family love to get outside and we're two hours from the ocean and we're two hours from the snow. And one of the unique things about Oregon and the West Coast in general is there are millions of acres that are available for the public to roam and to to be uh, active on. So often on the weekends, we go exploring the Cascade Mountains. We like to play in the snow. We like to pick berries and go hiking when the weather's good, and I like to go hunting and fishing. But before I started taking my family out into the woods, I went with some guys from our church a few times, and on one of these trips, we were driving on some BLM roads, Bureau of Land Management roads, roads. And uh, he said to me, Mike, if you ever get turned around on these roads, if you ever get lost, if you ever get stuck in a snowstorm, if you will stay on the main road, you will make it safely home. And that stuck with me. If you stay on the main road, if you stay on the narrow path, you will make it home. Guys, I don't have to tell you this, but we live in a world that they are calling VUCA. It's an acronym for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. We live in unique times, but at the same time, there's nothing new under the sun. And maybe this morning you're here, and my encouragement to you is to stay on the narrow path. Don't go to the left, don't go to the right, stay on the highway of the upright, stay on the main path, and we will make it safely home. The title of my sermon this morning is The Way of the Godly, The Way of the Godly. Psalm chapter 4 was written by David, and David lived in a vuka time as well. It was, there was a lot of crazy things happening at this time in history for Israel, We're not quite sure exactly the context of Psalm chapter 4, but there's a good chance that there was some sort of famine going on in the land based on verse 6 and 7. But these were difficult days. And in these difficult days, the people of Israel were tempted to look to other gods for their deliverance. They were were tempted to go to the left and the right and look to the world for their source of hope and salvation and joy. And David writes this psalm. As an exhortation to them to stay the course, to stay the road, and to continue on the path that they knew was right. To trust in the Lord for peace, joy, and even there at the end, for sleep. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. So this psalm, if you'll notice, it goes from uh, addressing God to man and then back to God. And in verse 3... We read that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And if you're here this morning and you've trusted in Christ for salvation, that's a good description of you. The Lord has set you apart for himself. And so the thing I want to ask us as we look at this psalm is how do the godly pray... And how do the godly live? We talked about the word of God last week. We're going to talk about it today. But specifically, how do the godly pray and how do they live? And the first thing I think we see in the psalm here in verse 1a is that when the godly pray, when the godly approach God, they approach God through his righteousness. They approach him through his righteousness. He says, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. He doesn't say, Lord, please hear me because of my goodness. Lord, please hear me because of what I have done for you. He says, God, hear me on the basis of who you are, based on your grace and your goodness, and you are my righteousness. The word righteous is a legal term. It means accurate, fair, just. These are all things that God is but we lack apart from him. And this is a comforting thing to hear, that God is our righteousness, especially for people who look at their lives in light of God's word and see that they fall short of his righteousness. I know that the gospel is preached from this church. Uh, Coming out here, I was listening to some of your sermons on Sermon Audio, and I went and clicked the beginning of each of them. And you know how they start every week? Will you please remain standing for the, for the reading of God's word? I played the next one. You know how it started? Will you please remain standing for the reading of God's word? As a matter of fact, all of you are trained to continue to stand so that you can hear, not from Casey, but from God's word. The gospel is good news, not because of who I am, but because of who God is. Not because of what I've done, but because of what God has done for me through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Now you're saying you're talking a lot of New Testament verses here. We're we're in the Old Testament, right? And I understand that Paul didn't know the phrase uh, justification by grace through faith alone, but he believed it, and he lived it, and he taught it. And Romans 4 tells us this. Romans 4 in verse 4 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness, just as David also spoke of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, lest is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. So again, how do we approach God? God. We come through his righteousness. We come through his righteousness. And as you think about your own prayer life this morning, which I would wager to say that all of us have work to do in our prayer life, how do you approach God? How do you approach God? Do you approach God in a flippant manner? Indifferent? Routine? Or are you demanding with the creator of the universe? Or maybe another way that we might approach God incorrectly is we just infrequent the throne of grace. And we are, not that we're praying wrong, but that we're not praying at all. Again, the right way to come to God is through his righteousness that he's imputed to us through Christ. The second thing we see here is that the godly come to God in faith. And this plays into the first point as well. But he says here in verse 1 at the end there, O God, hear my prayer. That is a request to be heard. And then we look in verse 3, and he says at the end of verse 3, he says... The Lord hears me when I call. And this is where we see this faith that because God is gracious and because he's been faithful in the past, he's delivered him in the past, he knows that he can come to God and he knows even more that God hears his prayers. Guys, as many times in our life that we need grace, there's enough grace in God's bank account For us to withdraw that grace from. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. There's enough grace for each day, for each hour, for each moment. But the question is, do we make use of it? Do we make use of God's grace? Do we believe his promises? And this is where faith comes in. This is a a rich prayer, song, but it's also a a song of faith. And this is where faith comes in. And it's interesting to me now, the word uh, here in verse 1 and in verse 3 is actually the same word Shema. Well, it comes from the root of the word Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Lord, Uh, God, the Lord our God is one. And it's a strong word. It's not a word. uh, The word Shema is not like, hey, can you hear what I'm saying? Like, I need to to talk to you about something. It's, it's, It's like a football coach from the sidelines saying, men, listen up. It's a command to hear. It almost seems strange that he's speaking to God this way, but this is his faith. This is because he knows who God is and he knows that God hears him. And faith is not some ambiguous feeling or an emotion. It's a certainty. Hebrews 11.1 tells us that, that, that faith is the assurance of things hopes for. The substance of things that we can't see with our eyes. It's a belief. It's a faith. It's a confidence that causes us to live differently. To be put into action. I think about... King David, when the uh, Amalekites came up against them in Ziglag, and David and his men were off battling, and this context here is in 1 Samuel 30, and uh, they come back to their camp, and the Amalekites had destroyed their camp, had taken their wives and children, and even his mighty men were crumbling. They were broken. And then they even started to turn on David and and blame David. And I love 1 Samuel 36. I go back to it frequently and it says, And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter of soul for each of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He strengthened himself in the Lord. He didn't just believe God. He didn't just speak about God. He it was a part of his life. It was something that caused, uh, there was something in that moment that caused him to run to the Lord. And so the godly on the path of godliness, staying on the main road, is coming to God in, through his righteousness and faith. The third thing we see, <clears throat> the third thing we see here is that the godly live set apart. The godly live set apart because God has Set them apart. You notice in verse two, he then addresses men. He says, "O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain, uh, vain words and speak lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call." For David, this could have been speaking of the time when his son Absalom uh, had turned against him and was seeking to overthrow the kingdom. And uh, he says, "This is these men are speaking lies." And Absalom won the hearts of the people, and was trying to uh, was seeking his dad's life, as a matter of fact. And he says he calls it what it is. They were spreading vain lies about him. But the Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows the truth, and they're set apart. They do not set them. We do not set ourselves apart. God sets us apart. We see this in the history of Israel. Uh, All the way back to Exodus 11 verse 7, God says that he made a distinction between Egypt and between the Israelites. Deuteronomy 7 reinforces this as well. And under the new covenant, we are set apart from sin, from the world, from the flesh, to live for the things of the Lord. That's what the word holy means. It means to be set apart from something, to be set apart to something. And we are to grow In holiness, right? And that's what John Dean talked about last week. He talked about sanctification, that we live uh, between our justification and our glorification in this wonderful phase called sanctification, right? Uh, I I heard something said this week I thought was so good. We're not who we once were. We're not who we're going to be. So what does that make us? We're in process, Each and every one of us are in process. We're we're set apart, but we have to live set apart. So what are some things that would indicate that we are living a life set apart? Well, it says here in verse 4 and 5, one thing would be, uh, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your own beds. Be silent, offer right sacrifices, and put your trust in the Lord. In other words, and we've already referenced this uh, at least once already, that our Christianity must move from the theoretical to the practical. It must move from from ideas to action if it is genuine. So he says, uh, be angry and do not sin. And the first thing I notice when I read this is that in some sense of the matter, he must be saying that anger is not in and of itself a sin. And it's not. Uh, emotion is not sin. It's, it was given to us from God because, as being created in His image, but it's been hijacked through the fall. It's what causes our anger. It's what we do when we are anger, angry that either makes it righteous anger or unrighteous anger. I'll say that again. It's what caused my anger that makes it sinful or not. And it's what I do when I am angry, when I feel anger, uh, that makes it what it is. And you might say, well, I'm not an angry person, so this must be uh, for someone else. Well, the difficulty with that is, 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 is not just talking about punching holes in the wall or yelling. Uh, the word translated here actually also can mean agitation, being agitated. And uh, I won't make you raise your hand, but how many of us have been agitated this last week or frustrated about something this last week? I think we could all say that we we all have to some degree. But we know that man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And I don't have a statistic or way to prove this, but I'm just going to go out there on a limb and say that if I had to guess how much of our anger, and this is based on my own life, by the way, how much of our anger uh, is actually righteous anger? I would say it's probably less than 1% of the time that we are upset because God's name is being profaned, because we're upset about some injustice or someone else is being mistreated. And so we get angry about it like Jesus did. Most of the time, it's not that way. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4, when talking about the new life in Christ, he says, he quotes this, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. No, give no opportunity to the devil or or give him a foothold in your life. I wish I had more time to to go into this, but suffice to say that uh, letting the sun go down on your anger, don't go to bed angry. Don't go to bed agitated and frustrated in your hearts, because, a, there's a good chance you won't sleep well, which is interesting, because in verse eight of Psalm four, he talks about sleeping well. But not only that, maybe even more importantly, you'll give the devil a foothold in your life. Anger's like a hand grenade. It can be used for good. But it all depends on whose hands it's in and how it's used. So we've got to be careful with that. Be angry and do not sin. So what do we do when we're frustrated, when we're agitated? Well, it says to ponder or to meditate. Amar is the word. It's actually the same word that God uses in, uh, that, that, that in Genesis one. Three, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, verse 6, and 11, when God said, let there be light. It says God says is the same word here. And it's interesting to me uh, that it, this is the same word for meditate or for, for pondering. It's not crossing our legs and going, um, right? It's not that kind of meditation. Meditation is actually, in the Old Testament, it talks about it's speaking the word out loud. It's saying the word. Psalm 119, 148. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Psalm 101, verse 2 says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. I remember walking up on a brother in Christ one time and he was just muttering under his breath, speaking the word. He was speaking the word of God out loud. That's a form of meditation. So God wants us to. Take our anger and our frustration to him, to the word, like John Dean was talking about last week, and knowing that only God can change our hearts. And so the godly, even in their anger, even in their agitation, they seek to do the right thing and to stay on the main road. He says, you know, in your anger, still offer right sacrifices to the Lord. Put your trust in the Lord for the outcome. The next thing we see uh, here is that, and I think this is really important, the, the godly have more joy in God than in his gifts. The godly have more joy in God than in his gifts. Verse 6 and 7 says, there are many who will say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of our face upon us, O Lord, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and when their wine abound. And what's going on here? In verse six, uh, there were some who are saying, Lord. Show us some good, God. Shine your face upon us. We we want to have your blessings. We want to have your favor. It makes me think back to when Jesus fed the five thousand, and then the crowd came back later, and they were what Jesus says, "Well, you you weren't looking for me. You were looking for what I could give you. You were looking for more fish and bread." Show us some good, but we could take or leave you, God. I think we're all guilty of this from time to time. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is he says the most valuable thing that the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God that made David dance. The Psalms help me to see the same delight and share that same delight in the one true God that caused David to dance. Guys, praise be to God that God doesn't give us everything we want, but he always gives us everything we need. I think one of the reasons, well, the Bible teaches it, that, that God allows suffering, that God doesn't give us everything we want is to remind us that this is not our home. That this is not all there is, that this is not the This is not God's best for us here. His best is to come. His best is in glory. His best has not been revealed to us yet. And God has given us many temporary delights in this life that we are to enjoy, that we're permitted to enjoy, that we should enjoy when they're enjoyed in the way that God has created them and intended them to be. But, guys, understand if we don't delight in God, there there may be a really good chance that He's not our God. Jesus said, You can't serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other, or you'll hate one and, and love the other. There's only one throne room on our hearts. And it's a battle. It's a battle. What God gives is much better than anything we could drink, anything we can eat. Anything that we could purchase. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4 If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked, and, and and I would have given you living water. I would have given you eternal life. And so we see that when we are born again, our taste buds begin to change. And this divine grace is so powerful, it's so transformative that. It doesn't work against our desires. It actually works with our desires when we're born again. I love what David Ortland says about this. He says, while the father is clearly sovereign, overseeing our redemption, we're not brought dragging and kicking and screaming to Christ against our will. Divine grace is so radical that it reaches down and it turns around our very desires. And that's what David is expressing here. He says, you have put more joy, you have put more delight in me for you than just for the things that I can get from you. The godly have more joy in Him than in the things that He gives us or could give us. We also see that the godly live with an awareness of God's presence in their lives. The godly live with a continual awareness of his presence in their lives. I'm going to read verse 8, but before I do, I say, uh, if you visit the Samuel's household at bedtime, you might hear this verse. Uh, We speak this verse together sometimes before we go to bed. My, My girls know it. They have a triple bunk bed, and uh, so bedtime's always really interesting. They're two, four, and six. Um, They get up like 17 times, and uh, that whole anger verse, remember that? (laughs) Real life application. But this verse is quoted often at our household at bedtime. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell and safety. What a great bedtime verse. As a matter of fact, Psalm 3 is often called the morning psalm because in verse 5, it says, I will lay down and sleep, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And the Psalm 4 is sometimes called an evening, ver- uh, evening psalm because of this particular verse. Now, I don't need to quote to you statistics about poor sleeping. Um, we all know that it's an issue. And if we don't get sleep, we have problems. We get brain fog, we get exhaustion, uh, which can lead to all sorts of things. There's an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, moodiness, anxiety, depression, and weakness. It weakens your immune system. It really makes you think when when you know that God doesn't sleep. Right. Psalm 121 verse four says, behold, he who keeps Israel neither sleeps or neither slumbers nor sleeps. God is not like us in the sense that he needs to recharge as we do. And I think sleep is a great reminder every, uh, what is it, 12 hours, something like that, 24 hours that we need to rest. We can't just keep going and go. We're not the Energizer Bunny, okay? We have to recharge. We have limitations. So why are the godly able to lie down, that is, cease from their work, and then sleep, drift off? It's because of the presence of God. It's because of the promises of God. It's because of the power of God in and over their lives, When we receive the Holy Spirit, y'all, he's not like a caretaker that comes and takes care of us during the day. And then he he goes back at night and he has to rest before he comes back and we meet again. God is still there present with us when we sleep. 24-7, 365. And why does he mention safety when it comes to sleep? Is Because for David, someone may have tried to take his life in the night so there was a real threat of safety for David at this point in time. And even if we are not in danger of that, guys, when we sleep, we're unconscious. There could be bugs crawling in our mouth for all we know. We don't know. We're asleep. But God doesn't sleep. And He's right there with us. Even when we're vulnerable... God is with us and the godly can sleep because they know that every breath every heartbeat is in the hands of the Lord and we are sustained by him I'll close with this I want to challenge you with this when when you get into bed tonight maybe you can make it a habit I'm trying to make it a habit don't bring your phone don't bring your phone with you to bed. If you've got to set your alarm, that's fine, but then put it on the dresser. Put it somewhere else. Don't be laying in bed looking at a screen for an hour and then try to fall asleep because it won't happen. Read a book. Read the Word. Think about your day. Think about your words. Pray. Do something that's going to help you focus on the Lord, something that's going to be good for your soul. And if you do this, and your head hits the pillow, and all the things start rushing into your mind when you go to sleep, your inadequacies, your failures, your worrying about the future, fear, sadness, bitterness, take those things in the one hand, and take the promises of God in the other hand, and put them together, and say, Lord... This is too much for me right now. You created me, you designed me so that I need eight hours of sleep. And I give these things to you. I I lay them at your feet. Will you please help me to sleep? Will you please help me to rest so that I could be useful to you tomorrow in Jesus' name? Stay on the main road and you'll make it safely home. Those who stay on the main road come to the Lord because of his righteousness, through his righteousness, not their own. When they pray, they pray in faith, taking God at his word, knowing that God will answer according to his will and his timing. Know that you're set apart. You're set apart from your old old life to live the new life in Christ. And know that when you go to bed, God can and he's willing to grant you sleep because you've done everything you can and you've put it all in his hands. And most of all, even when we fail, God is there and he's with us and he cares for us. And he will keep us and sustain us through the night. And he'll sustain us through the rest of this day. Amen. Amen. Father, we just thank you for our time together. We thank you that uh, your word doesn't return void. We thank you that you have told us how to live. You've told us how to sleep. You've told us everything we need for life and for godliness. And Lord, I pray for each person in this room today. I pray that if there is not one or if there is one soul here that says, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know that I've actually believed in Christ. I pray that they would not delay. I pray that they would run to you. I pray that they would not go to bed tonight until they've done business with you, Lord. So they've repented and trusted in you. The only sacrifice sufficient for our sin. Lord, I pray that you would sustain us. I pray that you would help us to stay on the highway of the upright, that you'd help us to to stay on the narrow road. Lord, and we know that you will do that, God. Give us the strength to persevere. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you that we can take the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name, amen.